Thank you so much for coming. I feel uh, as I begin this seminar, I don't know how many times I've done it, half a dozen or so over the years, um, this is the one where I'm most concerned that my heart be right. And that's always important, isn't it? But here, you know, as I'm looking at you, some of you come so fragile to this seminar, so on the brink of uh, survival emotionally. And uh, you, you want to hear something helpful about suffering. And, and I could really blow it uh, if I beat you up or if I shirked, shrunk back from truth. So I feel um, vulnerable that I not do it in a way that would be pastorally helpful or that it would not be true. So I would like especially to pray that God would help you to cut some slack for me and, and also be very discerning and, and pray for me that I wouldn't um, say things that are untrue or that would be insensitive or unhelpful. Let's pray. So, Father, we move toward this issue of suffering again, as Bethlehem has for as many years as people have suffered. And I ask for, in this particular seminar, a special grace of listening and understanding and appropriating and a grace of speaking. I have notes, but what may come to my mind by way of application, I do not know. I ask that you would bring things to my mind and to my mouth that would be supremely faith-building, life-giving, hope-advancing, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated. I don't want to depend upon myself. I lean now on your Holy Spirit and your Word and ask that you would come and strengthen those, especially who are at this moment dealing with such burdens in their lives that they feel crushing and not sanctifying. So, Lord, work, I pray. You're the one who turns our experiences for our good. In and of themselves, they only hurt. So come and do your great work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I have so many preliminary things to say, I wonder if I'll even get to my talk tonight. Because um, every time I, I, I get ready, I say, okay, what, what should just be off the front burner? Or what, from all the files that I have and all the texts that there are, is there anything I should just start with that I didn't start with last time? And, and so here's the first thing that I believe came from the Lord to my mind. Martin Luther said that Three things made him a pretty good theologian. And really, it applies to pretty good Christian. Number one, I'll give you the Latin first, because that's the way he gave it, even though he spoke German. Meditatio, and you can hear what that is, meditation. Oratio, you probably can't hear what that is, although it sounds like oration, and it's prayer. Oratio. And the third one is tentatio, which means 
trial. Meditating, praying, and being tried. Suffering. The German, as he explained it, was Anfechtung. Attack from the devil. And, and he said these three things made him what he was. And you know the text that he used for that third one? We all believe the first two. Nobody's going to doubt through meditation on the Bible is not good for you. And oratia, praying is not good for you. But some people might say, I don't think trial is good for you. It kills faith as well as builds faith. He got it from Psalm 119, verse 71, that goes like this. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So in becoming a doctor, a theologian, a thoughtful, useful Christian, he said, it was good for me that I was afflicted because I learned his statutes. The, the scary thing about life, just leave the Bible aside for a minute and study your life. The scary thing about life is that all of you, if you're over 25, or maybe even if you've had enough experience as a teenager, all of you would testify, I have learned most about God and the deepest and best things about God in the hardest of times. I wonder if any of you would want to stand up and say that over the course of my life, the deepest, most beautiful, most wonderful, most helpful, most spiritual things about God I've always learned when I'm in total health, the sun is shining, the marriage is perfect, I'm on vacation, I'm on the beach, I'm looking at skin everywhere, and I'm really being sanctified. Well, that is a trial, but it's not the kind the Bible's talking about. The reason I say it's scary is because if you want to grow in, in grace and knowledge, it means you're almost by definition asking for trouble. So that's the first thing I thought I should say by way of preface. The next is... I'm aware that there are a lot of young people here, and I thought I would pull together just a few stories so that you could connect, because I'm sure given the fact that I'm 62 and, and I, I've had lots of experiences, most of my illustrations are going to come out of my life, and they won't stretch back to my time when I was 15, although some might. So I, I pulled a few out. Do you remember in 1999... Uh, the Staines missionaries in India, remember that story? Where the, here's the picture, you probably can't see it from where you are, but you can just get the idea. This is the family. And uh, there's the, the, the dad right there, and there's the mom, and there's the 13-year-old daughter, and the two boys, I think one was six and one was nine. I forget the details, it's all in this article here. And um, they had worked for almost 30 years in leprosy ministry, loving the people in their district in India. And a radical Hindu sect uh, cornered uh, Mr. Staines in his jeep with his two sons and burned them alive. They poured gasoline all over the 
She set it on fire and wouldn't let them out, and they died. And the response of Gladys and Esther, who were left, the mom, Gladys, the daughter, 13 years old, were staggering. And I just mention it because it's the daughter, the 13-year-old daughter, when asked by the press in India, the mom said, no, we're not going back to Australia. We spent 30 years of our lives here. We're here to serve the people. We're going to forgive and press on in ministry. The daughter was asked, how do you feel? And her response was, I feel thankful that my dad was honored to die for Jesus. You take a deep breath and say, is that made up? Is that a, that a fairy tale? Somebody trying to make Christianity look unrealistic. God gives grace for moments. You, I've often thought if I had to suffer for Jesus, be tortured for Jesus, could I possibly endure? And at any given moment, I feel like no. I mean, I get angry if my shower turns cold when I'm, when I'm trying to take a hot shower and it's cold. I think, yeah, what if I had to stand under there for an hour? So I don't feel like I've got it in me. My only hope is there are graces for every trial. There's a dying grace, a suffering grace, and tomorrow's grace is for tomorrow. You don't have it today. So if you say, given today's resources, I cannot do tomorrow, no, you can't. His mercies are new every morning, and there's always enough just to get by. Sometimes there's a reserve. Well, I think probably, even though I have lots of such stories here, maybe I'll give you one more. i got to stop because we need to get going with our text. I realized I didn't start my clock. So how long have we been going? About 10 minutes or so? I'll add 10 minutes to my clock. We have to take a little, little stand-up break for video purposes. This is an email I got from a woman, young woman. Um, I could tell you who it is, and she wouldn't mind, but I, I won't just in case, who has... Um, She's not here anymore, so I don't want you to identify who it is. Um, some of you will know. Had about 40 surgeries in her life um, because of certain disfigurements. And, uh, and she, she had one more to go, she thought, and uh, see if they could fix one more problem that she was dealt in her birth. And she uh, wrote me after it didn't work. She said, uh, I feel complete peace and absolute closure for the first time in my life. The doctor was completely honest with me and said nothing could be done. I left the doctor's office truly rejoicing in the Lord. I realize now with full assurance that this is exactly the way God wants me to look and no good plan of his for my life will be thwarted on the basis of my appearance, if I needed to look a different way in order to accomplish his purposes, then I am confident he would allow those changes to occur. I love her, and I am deeply strengthened and moved by her, and there are a lot of such people at Bethlehem.
And I don't take them for granted. I don't presume upon you uh, that it could al- would always be that way. Every day's a new battle. But I just want you to know that when you persevere, your pastor is mightily encouraged. This is the syllabus, and I hope you picked it up when you walked in. If you didn't, you can get it when you leave. It describes the expectations for track one and track two, the seminary track and the non-seminary track. It's got the outline of the, of the topics, and they're in a, a little different order than in the booklet, but I've got the pages of the booklet that correspond to them, so you won't have to get lost And I'll try to mention those when we look at the overheads as well. The name of the seminar is Suffering for the Sake of the Body, the Pursuit of People Through Pain. In other words, I don't want to just treat this issue theoretically, like why is there suffering or what does the Bible teach about suffering, but rather with those kinds of reflections and answers, how do we help each other? How do you take your suffering and make it significant for somebody or how do you benefit from somebody else's pain because God clearly in the Bible is not treating your suffering as an isolated individualistic affair it is a community reality and he means for it to be dealt with in the church as a an action that does something good for us so disabled children are, are a communal issue Adults who can't function wholly, like 200 of them who live two blocks away from here, and a few who are come over, they're good for us, and, and so on. Just, so that's the reason I've given it that slant, suffering for the sake of the body, the pursuit of people through pain. I wanted to have a pastoral thrust, not just a theoretical one. So the box there, seminar description, what does Paul mean when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. So in my sufferings, he says, in my sufferings, in my flesh, I do my part in filling up for the sake of the church what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So that's a hugely important verse that we will look at later. Is your vision of God and your understanding of the biblical theology of suffering sufficient to sustain you when God calls you to suffer for the sake of his name here on the home front or perhaps on the mission field? This seminar is designed to prepare you for such suffering and to help you count it all joy. And then the course outline is on page two. And we'll start that as soon as we look at just a few books here. I know that you don't have time to write these down. I just want you to know this is available if you want. These are books on suffering and the sovereignty of God that I think would be helpful. Some of them are very old and some are relatively new. So Thomas Boston, Old Puritan, Jerry Bridges, who has walked through lots of suffering in his life. Um, Jonathan Edwards on concerning the divine decrees, I find to be tremendously helpful and weighty. Elizabeth Elliot, as you know, has lost, I think, three husbands 
for death. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata could not come to the women's conference a couple of weeks ago because she's in such pain. She can't travel right now. And uh, how can you have pain if you're paralyzed? Because your bones begin to become fragile and from the inside out, it's just a hard, hard thing. Um, I've written chapters uh, on suffering and, and edited with Justin this book here on suffering. Edith Schaefer, still living down there in Rochester, the book on affliction. R.C. Sproul, The Invisible Hand of God. Thomas Watson, All Things for Good. Actually, I think, yeah, All Things for Good. So that's a flavor, and if you want to look at that, you can get it from me or ask Matthew back at the book table. Okay, let's jump into the first unit. Ten aspects of God's sovereignty over suffering and Satan's hand in it. And this this will fill up, I think, all of tonight's session. The plan, by the way, is that we'll go two hours tonight. That is, we'll go till 9 o'clock without a break, uh, except maybe just a, a minute or two to change the tapes. Whereas tomorrow, we'll start at 9, Lord willing, We'll go for an hour and a half or so, take a break for 10 minutes, and then we'll finish up till noon. So that's, that's the plan. If you need to leave during this session, I'll understand. But um, it's so short tonight. It goes by quick, and there's so much to say, I don't want to take a break. The first thing we're going to talk about is the 10 aspects of God's sovereignty over suffering and Satan's hand in it. The great aim of Satan is to prevent and weaken and, if possible, destroy faith. So God's great aim is that he be glorified through your trusting him. When you trust him, you make him look trustworthy. And so faith is the aim of the ministry and what God is doing in your suffering. Satan's design is exactly the opposite. He wants to destroy faith. 1 Thessalonians 3.5, Paul says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to you, sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So he mentions the connection between faith and tempter. If he can do this, He can destroy the mission of the church. If he can destroy faith, he can destroy the mission of the church, the people of the earth. Jesus said in John 8, 44, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. Destroy faith, destroy missions, destroy people, and thus dishonor God. That's his aim. Satan uses pleasure and pain to do it. Pleasure to make us doubt God's satisfying greatness. Pain to make us doubt God's sovereign goodness. And I'm not sure which is the more dangerous. I think the first one is. I think more people lose their faith through pleasure than through pain. Otherwise, America might be a more godly place than it is because we have it pretty easy here, even in the worst of times. To triumph over Satan in pleasure and pain 
We need to know the word of truth that teaches God's sovereignty over Satan. By the word of God, we will triumph. I have written to you, young men, John says, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. That's the way we overcome the evil one, by the word of God. May God teach us now his word that we may triumph for our own souls and for the sake of our neighbors and our nation. So that's my pastoral longing for Bethlehem is I would like to so teach the word that your faith would be sustained through suffering. We wouldn't lose people in their pain. They wouldn't rebel against God and throw in the towel and say, if that's the way he treats his children, I'm out of here. So part of that teaching is, is God sovereign over Satan's ability to do things? Because I, I want to, I'm starting like this, lest, lest we don't take into account the reality of Satan. Satan is permitted right now to do unbelievable damage in the world. And if you don't think about it this way, you're liable to become a dualist. That would be a person <coughs> who has two ultimate realities. Not one, but two. Satan and God. And they're duking it out, and you're crossing your fingers, God's going to win. Because right now, it feels like God is out of control. That's the opposite of what I want you to see in the Bible. And, and I don't think that that view is helpful to picture that kind of dualism. I think we are made much more strong by saying God always has the upper hand in Satan's life. So here we go. There's 10 of these, I think. God's sovereignty over Satan's delegated world rule. First, first text that I look at is evidence that he has some world rule and then God's sovereignty over it. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world is cast out. There's the phrase that I want you to see. Satan is caused called the ruler of this world. Luke 4. Satan led Jesus up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and the devil said to him, I will give you this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall be yours. Now, he's a liar, so you might look at that and say, that's not true. He's, he's lying. It hasn't been given over to him, but Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 and Jesus here says he's the ruler of this world. And so in some sense, God has handed over the world to Satan and what he means, I think he means pretty truly here, if you could get the Son of God to bow down and submit to the devil, the devil would be happy for the Son of God to own the world. 
because he would be bowing down to the devil who would own the Son of God. Just keep, you know, as long as we keep the authority structure in place with the devil at the top, the Son of God can have anything he wants. That's the trick. That's the temptation. And Jesus won't go there. But the point is, the devil's got a lot of power in this world. A lot. Now, does he have ultimate power in that rule? Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for no authority except, there's no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. So, nobody gets elected except that God ordains it. Satan does not rule the world at that level except that God is in control. Daniel 2, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. So God is doing this. If Satan takes out somebody, God is behind him, ordaining it. Daniel 4.17, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets, it over, sets over it the lowliest of men. And on and on it goes. I don't think I'll read all of these. Maybe go to Proverbs. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So even when he's put in place, he can't do anything except what God ordains that he do. Ezra 6.22, they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria. The Lord had turned the heart of the king of Assyria. This is an illustration here of this. Toward them to encourage them in the work of the house. So God ordained that the king of Assyria help build the new temple in Jerusalem. Psalm 33 the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So anytime God wants to, he can nullify the counsel of the nations. He can frustrate the plans of the peoples. His counsel stands forever. So even though Satan may have huge authority in the world, he doesn't have ultimate authority. He can't do what God in that moment doesn't ordained that he do. Now, just a comment about vocabulary. I'm using the word ordained there. I could use the word permit and have no problem using it. But here's, here's the issue with permit. I could say God permits uh, wicked rulers to do a certain thing that are sin. And that's not a false statement. But if God has the power to restrain them from doing it, which he does, and he knows what they're about to do, which he does, then to permit is to permit with design and intention, which is why I'm using the word ordained. You can use another word if you, if you want. Just some word that, that folds in the big picture of secondary causality, but not ultimate decisive causality. Satan has real causality. It's just not ultimate. 
It's not decisive. Anytime God wants, bang, he's stopping him. And I'll, I'll show you lots of text to that effect before we're, we're done. So here's number two. God's sovereignty over Satan's angels, demons and evil spirits. These are tremendously encouraging. Here's this strange text from Daniel. You may, have rem- you may remember it. Then he, that is an unnamed angel, said to me, to Daniel, Do not be afraid, Daniel. From the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So Daniel had prayed, and God had sent this angelic being. But, verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia... Now, that's an angelic being called the prince of the kingdom of Persia. The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. You get a battle between two angels. 21-day battle. And God's emissary held up. That's weird, isn't it? It's called spiritual warfare in the heavenly places. And 20 years ago, more than now, people writing books about territorial spirits. It got all out of hand. It's true, probably. You just shouldn't programatize the whole thing, you know. Build your whole missionary world around, oh, we've got to figure out the spirit over Minneapolis, the spirit of corporate greed. And we all gather and pray every night against the spirit of corporate greed. Well, you still find any of that in the New Testament. You don't, you don't find Paul and Silas and Barnabas going into any city and trying to check out what's the territorial spirit over that city and then have big prayer walks through the city, bring down the territorial spirit, then they can do successful evangelism. It, that's just not in the Bible. And so people tried it all over the world 20 years ago and, you know, had little amazing things happen here and there. And then finally, I think, hope have drifted back into normalcy. And normalcy is the gospel brings down the devil. You preach the gospel in Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Athens and the heavens shake when the gospel is preached. You don't have to have these little shoe rifle just scatter this thing. Yes. Um, so the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then, behold, Michael. I, now that's another bigger, stronger angel, I guess. One of the chief princes came to help me. Now the me here is an angel. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. <laughs> I mean, all God has to do is say, Boop! and and this fella is out of it. He's just dead. It's one little snap of God's finger. So wh- why why God permits ordains this heavenly conflict that holds up the answer to prayer for three weeks? We will talk about the the why of Satan's ongoing existence. The why. God could just clean house on the demonic realm, as you can see right here. I love this text. I just love these stories in the Gospels. They were all amazed. After this, Jesus had done what he'd done on the sea. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? 
Mark 1.27. A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean. No, this isn't on the sea. This is in the synagogue. The unclean spirits, and they obey him. So there's the key. He commands unclean spirits, and they obey him. So you wonder, what's going on back here? All he has to do to say is, this king, this prince of Persia, get out of the way. I've got a prayer to answer. And he would get out of the way. He would. God didn't say it. He didn't say it. Whenever Jesus commands an unclean spirit, they obey. No. Question. Matthew 8. He's gone to the man who's insane, breaking chains. Nobody can control him. He delivers him. What business do you have with what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And he said to them, go. And they came out. That is absolute authority over the demons. One word, they obey. Wear that. Own that. You're going to have some really bizarre demonic experiences in your life before you're done. I mean, pictures moving on the wall and weird sounds and crazy thoughts of suicide and trains running under your garage and green things on the ceiling. Don't, don't be bent out of shape about these. He who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. And you just tell us green things. You can't hurt me, ultimately. In the name of Jesus, leave me alone. I'm doing this all the time. Not necessarily to green things. <laughs> but worse than green things. Green thoughts. Because they're from the devil. That's what fiery darts are, right? When, when they get through, they get through. What do you do? You do this. Go! In the name of Jesus. So this little conflict back here was simply allowed by God. It didn't have to happen. God could have said, go. Prince of Persia, and he would have gone. I underlined this. I love this. What do you think they meant when they said that? This, the demons are saying to Jesus, have you come here to torment us before the time? Demons and evil are irrational. These folks, these demons, know there's coming a time when this is going to happen. We'll all be cast into pigs forever. We'll be thrown into the lake of fire forever. They know that's coming. And they don't repent. They love evil so much, they're totally committed to evil, even though they know they're cooked. Have you ever talked to an unbeliever who was so hard, so irrational, so unresponsive, unresponsive, you just shake your head and say, oh.
this is scary. Those blank eyes, those completely out of touch brain and mind and heart with regard to what you're trying to say about spiritual things, totally, totally not there. Totally sold out to their present lifestyle and it is in control of them. And you realize you don't have any power on this planet. Jesus has it all and oh how we need him to be full of him. That's number two. He has authority over Satan's demons. Third, God's sovereignty over Satan's hand in persecution. Satan causes a lot of persecution. Here's an example. First Peter 5. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, so now you've got the devil. The devil. Prowling around like a lion, trying to devour someone. Now, what is that? What's he talking about? You can see what he's talking about if you keep reading. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same, this devouring thing, the same experiences of suffering. There are the jaws. The same experience of suffering are being accomplished or required of your brethren who are in the world. So the lion is seeking to devour believers and he's doing it by suffering. He's stirring up mobs and he's stirring up officials to hate Christians so that they do horrible, irrational things. I mean, Rwanda was demonic to the core. What happened there? Ooh, it's the horror of what happened in a moment between friends. Longtime friends hacking each other to death. Where did that come from? It came from hell. That's where it came from. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think that probably means in heaven. After you have suffered a little while, namely in your life, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, will come for you after all your suffering and he will bring you to himself and make you whole. Now, look at these verses with regard to the will of God. Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So even though I have attributed this suffering to the roaring lion and said that it's hellish. It accords with the will of God if God lets it happen. God could restrain it. I mean, when you read the book of Acts and other parts of the Bible, the first martyr is Stephen, and he was the best. 
He was the rising star. They could not resist his wisdom. His face shone like an angel. He was the best. And they took him out. And the next was James. They chopped his head off. And Herod saw how it pleased the Jews. And so he planned to do it to Peter after the feast. And then God opens the door of the jail and just walks Peter right out. Why not James? And if you tried to solve that by saying, James had a bad day. James sinned some that morning. I would get angry at you. Really angry. Because that means you're going to talk to people in this church that way. And you better not while I'm around. That is not the way our death is divvied up and our suffering is divvied up. Only. I'm not saying there is no discipline I'm saying God's not in a box like that. We have no evidence that James was having a bad day. God is sovereign. Stephen went. James went. Peter didn't go. And that's the way you look at life. I, here I am as a leader, maybe not even evangelical, but on German standards, faithful to the gospel, if not holy where he should be. 62 years old, he, 63 he, years he was, and... Uh, he was running. I'm one year from finishing my program. He's my doctor father. He's running for the subway and gets nauseated. And within an hour, he's dead. And I remember hearing that. And I sat there and I thought my whole program was jeopardized. But forget me. That's not the point at all. I, I thought 63 and Rudolf Bultmann and Ernst Kesemann are in their 90s, radical critics of the Bible who didn't think Jesus said six verses that were in the Gospels and they lived happily ever after till they dropped. And I, just, I said to the Lord, this is really strange. Why you would take out one of the more conservative, faithful scholars and leave there two of the most radical critics of the Bible. So it is with James and Peter. and In your life, you won't be able to explain those kinds of things. God is inscrutable in the way he applies his sovereignty. Or another example, for it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing what is right. So if you are... Suffering for doing what is right, not because you had a bad day, suffering for doing what is right, you can know God has willed it so. If God has willed it so, and you suffer for doing what is right, God has his purposes. First Peter is full of suffering and full of wisdom, and I commend the whole book to you. This Statement of Jesus in Gethsemane is one I love because of how at the worst and lowest moment it is so full of sovereign confidence. He says to the soldiers who've come to get him and take him away, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour. And the power of darkness. 
you get one hour. And I'm coming back. You feel that? This is your hour. My father and I have decided we give you an hour. It's not a literal hour. It's just a, this unit of time from Gethsemane to uh, Sunday morning. It's your hour. And you will do with me whatever you want. And I will accept it. And then nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And if I lay it down, I will take it again. I mean, I just, I just love keeping in mind the horrors of submission to the Father's will here and the glories of the confidence. And see, and I, I hope you feel that way when you walk into times of trial and it feels to you like Gethsemane to the max, sweating blood out of your pores and saying, my God, my God. If there's any way, let me out of here. Nevertheless, they get an hour or a lifetime, and then he comes for you. Number four, God's sovereignty over Satan's life-taking power. Satan can kill you. John eight forty four. you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, he was a murderer from the beginning. So Jesus chalks up Cain's murder of Abel to the devil and his own murder. It was Satan who entered into Judas, was it not? He's a murderer. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He says to the church, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. So there he, he, he's not saying it is going to definitely happen. I don't think, but it might. And if it does, you'll get a crown. The devil can throw you into jail. And the devil can take you out. But does he have the final say in life and death? He doesn't, ever. Deuteronomy 32, see now that I, God says, I am he. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Or 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Or this very important one, because it's just so down-to-earth practical about what you do tonight and tomorrow. James 4. Come now, you who say, which we all do, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city or cross town or school or work or wherever and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit or whatever. It's just an average run-of-the-mill day where I plan to go to Cub. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. Appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead of saying, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do. But as it is, you boast. 
he calls that statement arrogant. Today or tomorrow, we will go to Duluth and look at antiques. That's arrogant, he says. Because, at least implicitly, if not explicitly, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we won't have a wreck and die. Because that's what it says, live. If the Lord wills, we will live and do. So, clearly, in James' mind, staying alive from day to day is a gift of God. He can take it, he can give it. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You have to be so sensitive here. Death is a very painful thing for those who stay behind. Very, very painful. The Bible admits that it is. It says we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. So we really grieve, we really cry, it really hurts. Loss is very painful. It's like an amputation. And the closer the relationship, the bigger the wound. So I'm not making light of it. I'm just saying, don't treat it as though you had been wronged or as as though God had done something that he has no right to do. All life is in his hands and all death is at his disposal. Even though Satan is a murderer. You putting it together? I'm not denying the one or the other. Satan is a murderer. And if the Lord wills, you will die in prison. So if, if Satan ever jumps up and down, I killed James, I killed James. The Lord will watch him and say, well, yes, you did kill James. But you wouldn't have been able to kill James if I hadn't let you kill James. So get off your high horse. The pride of the human nature and the demonic nature is very great. Um, let's go here to the bottom just to save some time. Lazarus, these are the three resurrections that Jesus performs to show his authority over life and death. Lazarus, come forth. Young man, arise. Talitha, come. Jesus raised three people from the dead. He could have raised 30, 300, 3,000, and he raised three because he was giving pictures. He was giving foretaste. He was pointing to the final resurrection day when he would do that for everybody. And we are to see that and say he is absolutely in control of life and death. Number five, God's sovereignty over Satan's hand in natural disasters. Um, this may be a good time to pause.